microphone. You know, I was, when Pastor David asked me to preach, I don't know, a few days ago, great planning, he, um, <laughs> I started, I love our pastor, and we're very blessed to have him. I started praying and preparing to preach a sermon, and when I was doing that last night, I got home, and God grabbed me. I was looking over everything, and he said, um, son, you don't prepare for the sermon. I prepare you for my sermon. And so basically I had to trash the whole thing and start listening. And it's probably better because you might enjoy this more because it's not going to come from me. Now, those of you that don't know me, I'm not a native of Corpus, but I've lived here for over two decades. So that kind of makes me a transplant. I don't know what it makes me (laughs) crazy, but... I live in Corpus Christi with my beautiful bride, Erica, and I'm a plastic surgeon. And being a plastic surgeon is fun. I mean, we get to do a lot of fun stuff. But more importantly, we get to hear about a lot of interesting things. And I can remember a long time ago, I heard something. I checked it out. This is true. I'm not going to say And it was about this Japanese lady in Japan. Beautiful lady. But she didn't start out beautiful. She started out extremely ugly. But she had something that kind of my wife talks about. She says, there's no such thing as an unattractive woman, just a cheap man. And she... (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no. But what she did was she had a father who loved his daughter, very wealthy... And he gave her all this amazing plastic surgery in her youth, in her teen, late teen years. She had her nose redone. She had her chin redone. She had her cheeks done. She had her jaw changed. She had everything done. And when she got done, she was a smoke show. And she attracted the attention of an extremely wealthy Japanese businessman. And so he married her. And after he married her, a few years later, they had a child. And when the child, the businessman looked at the child, he's like, looks at the child, looks at the wife, looks in the mirror, looks at the child, looks at the wife, looks in the mirror. And he's thinking, you know, this kid's kind of ugly. And this is a true story. But he's patient. He thinks maybe they'll kind of grow out of it, right? And a couple of years later, he has another child. Same thing, child, wife, myself. Doesn't look too good. They have one more child two years later. And then the light bulb goes on. And he literally sued his wife. I'm making this up. Don't shoot me. (laughs) Shoot him. But you got to go to Japan to do it. He sued his wife for being dishonest with him about who she was because she could change what she looked like but she produced who she was and today we have a lot of people that change what they look like but they just produce who they are and I'm not talking about non-Christians I'm talking about the church 
So what's the number one problem we face in the world today? You can go global, you can go national, you can go state, you can go local, municipalities. What's the number one problem we face, anyone? Huh? Fatherlessness, what else? Godlessness, what else? Lies, alcohol, mutilations, abortion, all these things. Let me, let me confine it for you. The number one problem we face is nothing of those. It's sin. Number one problem in the world today, globally, corporately, in the family. And the problem we face is we try to overcome the greatest problem man has ever seen and never been able to overcome, sin, and we try to do it with human effort. We try to be better. Well, initially, we just try to be good. Then we try to be better. Some of us actually want to be the best. And we have a lot of modern-day Christians trying to change what people see by being good, by being better, or by being best. But they're producing who they are. I mean, we see the guy that goes to church every Sunday. He looks good. He serves. He ties. He says all the right things. Treats his wife amazing in public. But when he goes home, his family's falling apart. He changed what you see, but he still produces who he is. And not to pick on people, but corporately, let's just look at the church. The church wants the kingdom of God, the blessings of the kingdom, the peace of the kingdom. They want everything from the kingdom. Just not the king. That's why this nation is rotting morally. While church attendance is starting to go back up again. You have mega churches. You have medium churches. You have small churches. You have churches everywhere. You have 65 million people claiming to be an evangelical Christian. And our nation is rotting. Some of you are sitting there going... Mm, not much I can do. No, there isn't anything you can do. But the king can do everything. Now, I know the church believes in God. They all want the kingdom. They all believe in God. They believe in his kingdom, but they're not willing to get the king. But guess what? The Pharisees had a belief system. but they didn't have a root system. And what we're seeing today now is the spirit of the Pharisees all over the church today. They have a belief system, no root system. I'm gonna keep saying this, a belief system, but no root system. And we have a lot of modern day Pharisees. And you know what Christ told the Pharisees? He says, you know the scriptures but you won't come to me to receive life. 
Matthew 6, 33. If you want to bind something to your heart, if you want to understand the key to the kingdom of God, if you want to understand the key to yourself, your family, your city, your state, your nation, you want to understand the key of life. Look at Matthew, Matthew 6, 33. It says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided to you. A simple verse. It's not that long. You can remember it. Vacation Bible school, a six-year-old could stand up and say the verse. But I like to look at it in the Amplified Bible, too. I think it breaks it down more. So we're going to be like we're in sixth grade today, maybe third. It says, but first and most importantly, aim at, strive after his kingdom and his righteousness. Righteousness meaning his way of doing and being right. The attitude and character, I'm going to say the nature of God. And all these things will be given to you also. In the Passion Bible, it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm skipping a few things. And all these things, lesser things, things that aren't as important will be added to you. So we all want change. We all want the kingdom of God, and I want to seek that in my life. But it says I have to seek his kingdom, not mine. His righteousness. In the Hebrew and Greek, his moral righteousness. So before anything else is added to you, all these lower things in the world, you have to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And the problem is in the church today, we hear things like, I do the best I can. I mean, I'm not Jesus, or I'm not God. And I'm going to tell you today, I came to salvation late. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because the church today will tell you to be like God, be have the principles of God, when you need to understand you need the person, Jesus Christ, living on the throne of your life, the king. The Bible calls him the king, better translated, the Messiah. Messiah means anointed king. And all this won't change. We all want that king. We all have that desire to be better, that desire to be good. And the world tells us to be good. Problem is, we have moral laws in our world today passed by people who don't have the morality to keep the moral laws they're passing. And you're getting more frustrated. You don't have peace. You don't have understanding. You've heard about the king, but do you really have him? That's a tough question, especially in church, especially when a guy standing up here who is the biggest sinner on the planet is telling you that. And a person can try and change themselves, but at the end of the day, because I tried, I tried to do it right. I tried to do it 
better. I tried to do it good. I tried to do it the best. The problem was I could always count on, unfortunately, reproducing who I was. And society at large has surrendered so much right now that instead now of trying to change themselves, they've just decided to change the definitions of good. I can't change myself. I mean, I'm not God, so I have to change the definition of good. I have to change the definition of a man, of a woman, of a child. The problem is, it's sin. And the wages of sin are death. Don't take my word for it. Just look at history. Every kingdom of man in history ends in death, destruction, chaos, division. It ends in dust. I love archaeology. I've traveled the world. If I wasn't a physician, I'd have been an archaeologist. I worked in the intelligence community for over two decades. And one of the benefits of traveling to really crappy foreign countries was there's a lot of cool history there that no one can go over and look at because it's too dangerous. So in my off time, weird as I am, I would go to caves. I would go to cities that were dust or just wreckage of what they were previously. Because they all had one thing in common, no matter how great they were, no matter how powerful they were. I've crossed the Khyber Pass, where Alexander the Great crossed. Doesn't matter. All this greatness ends in death, in destruction. And a culture dominated by sin produces an environment of living death and chaos. I think we call it a hell on earth. But here's the bigger problem. A body dominated by sin, a body dominated by sin endures a living death. That's why a lot of people want to check out today. They'd rather go to the actual death than endure a living death. And before you think I'm talking to all those godless liberals out there, I'm speaking to Christians. I'm speaking to the church. I'm speaking to the body of Christ. Why does he call the church the body of Christ? I always wondered that when I was a kid in vacation Bible school. Lady with like this big hairdo, 17 feet high, and enough hairspray where flies would just get stuck or they'd just die on impact. And she would say, we're all the body of Christ. And I'm, I'm a kid. I'm throwing spit wise because I was a preacher's kid. And I'm like, I don't get that old body of Christ thing. I didn't get it till I realized that I was dying at 45 years old. That I was enduring a living death. And that I needed a different body because mine wasn't cutting it. Romans 7.24. And let me tell you something. How many people read their Bible? Raise your hand. Be honest. God's watching. (laughs) How many people read your Bible every day? How many people read your Bible and remember what they read 30 minutes later? 
Let me tell you something. I read my Bible a lot in 45 years, and I couldn't tell you what I read the moment I closed it because I just had to check the Bible box. Check. My dad would say, are you reading your Bible? Yes, sir. (laughs) The only problem is God was standing behind me going, nope, not doing it. Not at all. Let me tell you something. The Bible wasn't just written to you. It was written in you. Every word you need to understand the mystery that you're struggling with, sin, is encoded inside of you and activated by the word of God. Why do you think this book... Most publications of any manuscript in the history of the world. Number one, New York Times bestseller forever. How did it last this long, thousands of years? How did the Bible last? Through kingdom after kingdom, crumbling kingdom, society after society. The only thing that still stands is the word of God. God's laws. And in Romans 7, 24, it says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And what Paul's saying there is back during Roman times, if someone committed murder, was a criminal, and I'm looking at a metric ton of spiritual criminals in front of me, me being the worst, Someone killed someone. They would tie a dead person to them. And as that dead person would decay, it would literally make the healthy person sick. Over a long period of time, it was enduring a living death. And you would eventually die. If you look what it says in the Amplified Bible, I love the way it explains it. It says, he made Christ who knew no sin to judicially be sin on our behalf so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. That is, we would be made acceptable to him and placed in the right relationship with him by his gracious, loving kindness. His righteousness. This is very simple. But it is extremely complex to Christians. Because the main message of Christianity, the mystery, is Christ in you. The hope of glory, the Messiah, the anointed king. You can't have his kingdom, which is here and now, what Jesus Christ, after rising from the dead, spoke about for 40 days. Prepare, or seek ye first, the kingdom of God, here and now. Not in the future, not when you die. Some of you Christians are like, I'm going to go to the kingdom when I die. And I'll just water for Jesus on earth. Jesus doesn't want you to live a hell on earth. He wants you to charge the gates of hell in the kingdom of God on earth so that others can have his righteousness. And it's like, okay, that's cool. We, we, we think we can do that, but there's always a but. 
I like big butts and I cannot lie. This is the biggest butt you will have in Christianity. That's not a plastic surgery thing. That's a scriptural thing, but not the anatomical one. Galatians 2 is going to give you more of the answers. Remember that whole Bible thing written in you? It is no longer I that live, Paul says, but Christ in me. God doesn't want to crucify you. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to crucify your flesh. But here's the catch. He can't crucify your flesh unless you let him. He loves you enough to give you free will. You all have free will. Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I know I should. Does that sound like, I don't know, all of us? Look, I want you to get this today. I don't know your, where you come from, what your past is, and quite frankly, that doesn't matter. You want to change you, which will change everything? Then listen to this. God wants to kill in you what is killing you. I'm going to say it again. Jesus Christ wants to kill inside of you what is causing you to endure a living death. What is killing you right now? What is killing your children right now? What is killing your spouse right now? What is killing your community right now? What's killing our state? What's killing our nation? God wants to kill it, and he can with the catch. You have to let him. When an offering was brought back in the Old Testament, to the tabernacle, the priest would slit the throat of the goat and he would let the blood run off in a bowl and all the blood had to be gone before they burned the flesh. They burned the animal nature. And what he was showing is he was separating life from death. He knew you had to burn the animal nature. And we hear about that and we think, Yeah, I know. I'm trying. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to be best. Let me help you with it. Does anyone teach swimming in here? Well, the first thing you do when you learn to swim, my grandfather taught me at a very early age. Every one of me, my brother, my cousins, learned to swim before we could walk. And the first thing you have to do when you learn to swim is to float. You don't try to swim. If you try to swim and move in your own power, you will get tired, panic, and drowned. You just get worn out. But when you relax, your own natural buoyancy just lets you float, lets you float. And then when you realize, I can always float, then you can learn how to move. When we're in our flesh and trying to overcome sin as a human being, we're trying to swim without ever knowing how to float. Anything but Christ to try to overcome sin ends in frustration, 
you're weary, you're tired. It's all behavior modification. But people come to church wanting to be good by effort, and they get trapped in this effort instead of floating in his nature. His nature keeps you afloat. The king keeps you afloat. His nature, his methods, his message. And we identify with Christ on the cross, crucifying our sin nature, killing the animal, becoming alive to Christ. And now my identity, which is true power, and I've been in the White House, and I've briefed in Congress, and I've seen all kinds of things, but true power is when Christ the King sits on the throne of your life. The King is the power. And you know what real power does? It produces life. Life with your children. Life in your marriage. Life in your community. My son works in Austin, or he did. He did a little stint between in college on his break. And he called me. He loves political science. And he, he said, Dad, I am sitting in the halls of power. And I go, you're in heaven? He's like, no, I'm in Austin. True power, world power is nothing but the perception of power. We have a whole society being shaped by a government based on perceived power. When you have the king in your life, you'll know what true power is. And I understand that perception of power. But the perception is not the reality. But we keep trying to do it ourselves. I know I did. I had Keith Rose sitting on the throne of Keith Rose's life for 45 years. And instead of going from glory to glory to glory, as the Bible talks about, I went from story to story to story. Well, this happened, or, oh my gosh, it would have been awesome, but this happened. I had lots of stories, zero glory. I could tell you all kinds of cool stories. I did everything I could for the kingdom, and I did it without the king. So I just basically, for 45 years, endured a living death. You know... I saw something on Twitter the other day was talking, Candace Owen was asking, men, ages 40 and up, tell me about your midlife crisis. I'm working on a thesis. I think that midlife crisis in men, if they don't have God sitting on the throne of their life, it's just where they come to the point and they realize, I'm tired. I have no identity. And we keep trying to do it ourselves. I did it. And I was drowning in me instead of floating in him. It's that simple. God was looking down going, what a knucklehead. And I think the angel was like, what a chucklehead. I had the king going, hey, pick me. Pick me. I'm doing me. 
and I'm floating. No, I'm sinking, going from story to story. When God says float in me and go from glory to glory to glory. Not glory when you die, glory as you live. And it takes grace. It takes a lot of grace. Problem is the church without the king preaches grace as a principle. Oh, I just need some more grace. Let me help you out here. Grace is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. John 1 says, grace came from Jesus Christ. When Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, what was his face doing? It was glowing. Why? Because he had the glory of God on him. He was glorified. The only way I can keep God's commandments is if I have the glory of God. The only way to be glorified and have the glory of God God and keep his commandments is to have the king, the anointed king, the Messiah, Christ the king, in me. Because then I don't just have a moment of glorification. I go from glory to glory to glory. And if I carry the law, the rules, any other way, it's death. You all know the example in the Bible when the Pharisees brought the woman to Jesus to trap him. This woman's, been, this woman's committed adultery. The law says we should kill her. And Jesus kind of just kneeled down in the tabernacle and started writing in the dust. A lot of people will tell you different things about what they think. I think he was probably writing all the stuff, the sins those guys were committing. But at the end of it, all of them had left, oldest to youngest. I figured the older ones were a little more wiser and realized, yeah, I need to leave. There's some power here. But when they all left, Jesus looked at the woman and he says, we're your accusers. She said, they have gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, when God writes in the dust, it brings life, not death. But we get stuck in our minds. We get stuck in the knowledge and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or good and bad. And fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because if I fear God, I will hate evil. Make it simple. If I fear God, I'm going to hate sin. See, I love Jesus growing up. Just didn't fear God. I loved what he loved, but I didn't hate what he hates. And my life showed it, and I was producing death. Let me just tell you right now, you can be saved. You may have Jesus Christ in your heart, and you believe he is your Lord. Congratulations. You're a Christian. You'll go to heaven. You'll live an enduring death on earth if you stop there. you have to have fear of the Lord. And the closer you get to God, the closer your conscience, and this is 
I'm, this is from personal experience. The closer you pull to the king, the more your conscience is going to make you feel like a complete, your, your complete and total unworthiness. And your sin is going to be disgusting to you. That link you used to click on to go watch porn, it'll make you nauseated. Looking at anyone but your wife, it'll make you sick to your stomach. Because I'm close to God, I hate what he hates, but I love what he loves. And when I say I hate what he hates, I hate homosexuality, the act. I don't hate the person. I hate abortion. I don't hate women that have had abortions or are going to have them. Because I love what God loves. God loves the person. He hates the sin. He hates the sin because he knows it is bound around you and rotting you on earth and killing you. Some of you need to look in the mirror, smell the rot. It isn't fun. You think, well, I'm not that person. And your spouse or someone close to you is going, you're that person. Trust me. That's you. They're right. So the further away you get, though, when you're walking in the darkness, when you've chosen to live your own life, the further you get away, you don't have that conviction of sin anymore. The further you get away, you lose your awareness of sin. I mean, you've seen people that wear certain clothes that shouldn't and are completely unaware of it. It's kind of weird, but think about your sin when you're not even aware of it. You know God, but you forget what sin feels like. It's an enduring death. And the greatest obstacle to life and success is sin. The number one problem is sin, and you can't work the problem because you don't have the tools, the training, and the knowledge. In the special operations community, we have a saying, we say we work the problem because you get a lot of training, you get a lot of instruction, you get a lot of tools, you get everything you need to overcome obstacles for mission success. And when a problem arises during an operation, you work the problem. You use those tools, you use those trainings and knowledge, learn to work a particular problem to get that mission success. But against sin, you don't have the tools. You don't have the training or the knowledge to defeat sin and produce life. You can't read, study, or work your way into an understanding of how to stop sin. You can read the Bible forever. You won't stop sin in your life. You can listen to every message ever written. You can stand up. You can cry. You can feel the Holy Ghost rush through you. You're not going to stop sin in your life. You can modify your behavior. And you may not sin, but you're not going to stop the effects of sin. And you're certainly not going to produce life. You can't change. And this is what I want you to understand, to be successful. I can't change who I am to be successful. If you don't remember anything from today, if you go home and eat at a restaurant or go play golf or fishing or whatever you do, understand something. You can't change to defeat sin. 
You can only exchange to defeat sin. The only way you're going to be successful is not to change who you are, but to exchange who you are. My life for his life. He already gave his life to conquer sin, literally. He suffered. He died. He went to hell. He came back. He rose again and conquered death. All I got to do is go, I'll trade you. And he says, done. And the way you exchange is you die to yourself. You get the risen king in that exchange. It's, it's a good deal. I promise you. You get the risen king through that exchange, and you, he creates in you holiness that not only conquers sin and death, but produces life and glory always. He, Christ the king, is the only way the truth, and the life. I think I've heard that somewhere before. He makes you a new person. I believe in the church we call it born again. You don't get born again, and I don't mean this sacrilegiously, by just accepting Christ. You get born again when you exchange you for him. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, I mean, my individuality remains, but my primary motivation for living in that nature that rules me gets radically changed through the exchange. I have the same human body, but the old satanic right to me, to Keith, is no longer there. I got the power. No, I'm Jim Carrey in that movie. I got the power. He's doing all that stuff. And Bruce Almighty, I get the power. There's none higher. I get the king. And when you get the king, guess what you also get with the king? The kingdom. Now, if I have the king inside of me, this is the cool part. We're going to go back to that first verse. I have his righteousness. That's the Rosetta Stone moment here. That's the key that unlocks the mystery. Keith can't have Jesus' righteousness just through salvation. I can't get Jesus' righteousness from reading my Bible and trying to change. I can only get the righteousness of God from God himself. Jesus exchange me for him, his righteousness, his holiness for my animal. I died to myself. But I become alive to Christ. And when you have that, you feel that it is something that your external circumstances may not change, but how you deal with them will, because no matter what the world throws at you, you will produce life. Not you, just Christ in you. I like what Paul says, and the life which I now live in the flesh, not the life which I long to live or even pray that I live, but the life I now live in my mortal flesh the life which others can see, I live by the faith in the Son of God. But listen to this. The faith wasn't Paul's own faith in Jesus Christ. 
to give him faith in God. It was Jesus Christ's faith in God sitting at the right hand of the Father that gave him that faith in that peace and that knowledge and that power. The faith wasn't Paul's own faith, but Jesus inside of him. But faith in the Son of God that had given it to him. It's no longer faith in faith, but faith that transcended or rose higher than everything you can think of. You can't think of where God wants to take you. You don't have that ability. It's unimaginable. But a faith that comes from the Son of God living in you will let you do things you never dreamed possible. You will dream things that you recognize I in my own power could have never do, but Christ in me, ridiculously simple. And the cross is removing anything in your life that doesn't produce life. When Christ comes in you, he's going to crucify anything that is not about him and that is worthless to you. He crucifies what you have that's killing you. And he gives you life and life abundant. So at the end of the day, you have to understand his moral righteousness is not something that you can impose. But it is something that it is exposed something exposed out of the very character of God. So morality is not a verbal thing. What I say, it's vital. It's life. Morality, his righteousness comes out of the exchange, not the change. And with Christ, a life of exchange and the replacement produces life. And then when we have these moral laws that we are given by God, God commands me to live for his kingdom. But since I made the exchange, I now have the power source to keep my own command. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I'm not moral enough to keep moral laws. Christ in me, ridiculously simple, right? So self-surrender is basically the greatest emancipation that has ever happened. The greatest freeing of the slaves that has ever happened has come from when we surrender ourselves to Christ. Because until then, you're a slave. And meet your chains, it's called sin. And slaves that love their chains will never be free. You have to love God more. I'll end with this. You know, modern psychiatry says, accept yourself as you are. You try to talk it out. They take you back. They bring you forward. They go for that old behavior modification. They say, accept yourself as you are. are. But this asks you to accept, without Christ, your unacceptable self. How do I do that? How can I set the unacceptable me? But when Jesus comes in and sits on the throne, he says, I will accept you as you are, but I will make you into a self whom you can accept for it will be acceptable. Most of you don't like yourselves. I'm gonna let you know something. It's impossible to like yourself. You can only love the king. 
Last night, I um, took a break, went to get dinner at a movie. We, my wife and I went to John Wick 4. And I kind of was checking my spirit going, Lord, am I doing the right thing? I'm preaching tomorrow, and I, shouldn't I be home like being godly or something? And he's like, go to John Wick 4. And I'm like, serious? Yeah, my, you know, I didn't get any check in my spirit, so that's cool. I went to John Wick 4. And I got out of it, and I'm like, yes, I guess it was okay. <laughs> I was in the shower this morning, and God's like, did you get the lesson? And all of a sudden, I got it. Anyone see John Wick? One, two, three. It's a pretty popular movie. Those of you that haven't seen it, it's all based around the kingdom of the earth. And the highest order in the earth is something called the high table. And they have a saying, everything is below the table. And so this is the fourth installment. I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert or anything. But the bottom line is, in the fourth one, there's three people that are trying to get away from the table or the earth's kingdom. One's trying to do it by buying his way out. One's trying to do it by serving his way out. And one's trying to do it by killing his way out. And I got to be honest with you, I identified with all of them because that was me. I wanted out of the earth's kingdom and I didn't know how to do it. Because, as it says in the movie, the high table produces nothing but death. But when you exchange your life with the Messiah, the king, and he's living inside you, you're not under the table. The king prepares the table for you. You sit at the table. He brings life. And when you eat at his table, you produce it. Those of you that think your marriage isn't going to work, eat at his table but you got to have the king there because you can't go to the king's table unless you have the king. Sorry, we ran a little late. But today, if, you're, if you really want the king and you want to make the exchange, I'm not talking about talking about it. I'm not talking about working it out, buying it out. Don't be like me, killing it out. I'm talking about just giving up and saying, God, I just want you. Make me the king by giving my life to you. I don't want death to kill me slowly. I want life to bring me to my purpose, my design, and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we just worship you. We thank you you sent your son, the king. Not the future king of the universe, but the king of the kingdom here now, for always and forever. And I pray, Lord, that you would just shoot the sword of the Spirit to every heart in this room, that they would realize that they need to die, that they need to voluntarily die so that they can become alive to the King in their life. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.